Excitement is in the air in Los Angeles. For the purple and gold, that is. The Lakers. How many of you guys are Lakers fans? Okay, some of you are going to be pretty bored in this first few minutes. <clears throat> well, you know, LeBron James, you've probably heard of LeBron James, has arrived and preseason games are already going on. And from a couple of your Instagram feeds, I know you guys are hitting up those games. No matter what your feelings are for LeBron, the fact that he is here is exciting, at least for basketball fans, Lakers fans. He is here to rebuild the Lakers dynasty. If you're a Lakers fan, you've been waiting for the plan, and you now get to see that plan brought to fulfillment, that is, topple the Warriors and win championship after championship after championship. That's exciting. Strategies are going into this. Lots of money is going into this. LeBron James is here, and he's the central piece of this team. But let's be real. This is basketball. Throwing balls in hoops. We're talking about basketball. As entertaining as basketball is, there is one who has established and is bringing to fruition heaven's dynasty even right now. And while the big names for the Lakers come and go, his dynasty is fixed because there is no other name above his name, and that is Jesus Christ. So while we all might be excited about the Lakers' plans, friends, our passage pulls back the curtain to see the very plan of your Creator. What he's building his very plan, the plan of a loving God to save sinners from eternal judgment through Jesus Christ. And friends, it is that plan that is going to go into the ages. There is the ar arrival of LeBron James, but we today are talking about the arrival of the Son of God. And in today's passage, we see the undefeatable plan of God to save his people for his glory. That's the big point for today, the main topic, really. We see the undefeatable plan of God to save people for His glory. And our passage today is found in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 to 36. Romans chapter 11, verses 25 to 36. It can be found on page 947 if you're using those black Bibles right there in front of you. So I invite you to turn there with me right now. And in our passage today, Paul the Apostle draws to a conclusion what he has been addressing in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, and really... In some ways, what he's been addressing since Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, sort of the theme verses of the book of Romans, says there that the gospel or the good news is what the gospel means. The good news of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. So it's basically, it's a shorthand way of saying the whole world, Jews and then Gentiles as well. So, of course, in relation to the Jews and then the Gentiles, right, Jerusalem, the central place of worship for the Jews, that's where Jesus was crucified, that's where he got up from the dead, that's where the apostles began preaching. The, uh, the apostles preached to the Jews there in Acts chapter 2, we see. But then we know, too, that the gospel was to the Gentile. And so you see in the book of Acts that the gospel was, it started to be preached there in Jerusalem and expanded to the areas where there were also non-Jews, to Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. 
And this gospel was going out. And Paul, the apostle, the author of the book of Romans, the letter to the Roman Christians, writing in the mid-50s A.D., this is what he was all about. In relation to the Jews and the Gentiles, it's interesting, though. You look in the book of Acts, you see there that what happened was that as the gospel was preached to the Jews, the Jews actually rejected Paul. A lot of them did. I mean, some of them came to faith, but a lot of them rejected Paul. And then you see the apostles turning to take the gospel to the Gentiles, that is, the non-Jews. And as far as I know, that is all of us. The Gentiles have been brought into God's salvation plan. But nevertheless, there was some confusion here. We're just talking about background. We're talking about facts. We're talking about the book of Romans. There's some confusion, right? If salvation is to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, why are so few of the Jews turning to Jesus, actually? And then you have other questions like, well, where do the Jews fit into God's plan of salvation to save Jew and Gentile? And then what about the Gentiles? It's all these issues that are brought up in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. And then in today's passage, as we come to the end of chapter 11, Paul is wrapping up. He's summarizing God's undefeatable plan to save his church for his glory, both Jew and Gentile. Look there, Romans chapter 11, verses 25 to 36. I'll go ahead and read that now. Lest you be wise in your own sight... I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel... They are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also, may, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. We look first at verses 25 to 27 at God's plan to save his church. God's plan to save his church, verses 25 to 27. From this passage and then from the letter in general, we know that God's plan, once again, is to save a people of different backgrounds, to unite a bunch of different people from every tribe, tongue, and nation that worships Christ. And God was fulfilling this plan as the Roman church Paul was writing to, right? They were Jew and Gentile. Now, this is pretty amazing considering the historical tensions between these two groups of peoples. There were, in fact, tensions between these two groups of peoples. So just as today, America, and throughout America's past, has been plagued by sins of racism, classism, discrimination, well, so did the Roman Empire in the first century. The Jews were a small minority in the Roman Empire, but to the Romans... They just seemed exclusive with all of their worship and their dietary laws and their customs and all these things set them apart. The problem, though, it's not bad that they be set apart, but the problem in them being set apart is they were proud about all of these things. 
Right? They boasted in having the law of God, the promises of God of being the circumcision, which summarized them being set apart. They were sinfully proud, so much so that they self-righteously looked down on other people, the Gentiles, as those dirty sinners right over there. And imagine the Roman Gentile response, right? If someone judges us, we know this from personal experience, if someone judges us, most likely we're going to be judging them back. Hatred begets hatred, pride begets pride, etc., right? This has been our experience. We know very well that genuine victims can turn around and victimize. This is very natural. The Romans were known to some degree for their hostility and even at times violence towards the Jews. The, the Gentiles, too, were proud. But here's the deal. It seems like some of these sins were following them into the church. They were following the believers into the church. And we know this from Romans chapter 11. The Gentile Christians boasted over unbelieving Jews because the Gentiles were partakers of God's salvation while at the same time God was judging the Jews. Now, on one hand, we shouldn't be too surprised to see sin in the church, right? God doesn't promise us to be perfect. God saves people from all sorts of backgrounds, which means that we as Christians, when we come into the church Naturally, we're still going to be battling certain sins, the very slaves and masters we once, once worshipped. Some of us, that is pride, self-righteousness, maybe even a lack of trust or inherent cynicism or even racism and things like this. So, so if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, or if you're a young Christian discouraged in your imperfection, right, just because one becomes a Christian doesn't mean that we are perfect. Perfection comes, but at the final day. This means that here on this earth, where we do genuinely experience the many blessings of salvation, right? We should, our Christian lives should be marked by this battling against sin. Our lives really should be marked by a continual repentance of sin. That is a turning away from our sin and to Jesus Christ. This means that we shouldn't be surprised to see some sin in the church, but we should be surprised to see unrepentant sin. We should be surprised to see unrepentance in where, indi- where an individual does not let go of the former things that they once loved, the things that are marked by the world, the flesh and the devil, right? So we want to be repenting of our sin. Where we see unrepentant sin, there we have a problem. That's why we have church discipline. You know, church discipline is a helpful thing to encourage people to turn back to the Lord. That's not for sin. That is for unrepentant sin. We all sin. Hopefully we all confess, right? N- yet not all of us are disciplined. And that's an okay thing. We did, Jesus commands us to exercise church discipline for unrepentant sin. So this is the reason why Paul writes so sternly in Romans chapter 11. is because he wants the Christians to give up sin, to stay away. Regarding the sin of the Gentile Christians, Paul wanted them to stay away from pride. They're boasting in their status as being the children of God over and against those who were not. Right, so we already saw last week uh, there in verse 11, or sorry, verse 16 of chapter 11, you have this idea of the people of God being a tree, right, where God's promises and the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were the roots of the tree of the people of God, right? And the Jew, the unbelieving Jews were broken off and Gentile believers were added onto the tree. And so you have here the Gentiles who are boasting over Uh, the non-believing Jews. You look there in Romans chapter 11, verse 20. Paul rebukes them. Don't be arrogant. Don't be proud, but fear the Lord. 
the inference is, right, cultivate humility, guys, because there's no room for pride under God's grace and mercy in the cross. And so as he's encouraging this humility, he points them back, not to themselves, because that's what pride is. He points them back to God. Look there in verses 25 to 27. I'll go ahead and read that. Lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the, the, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. It's pretty clear why he writes about God's big picture plan, right? He writes there, lest you be wise in your own eyes. He wants them to cultivate humility and to kill pride. Lest pride consume you. The proud here are confronted with a number of things. First and foremost, that all that has gone on to bring one to salvation is not on account of you. It's on account of God. So if you know yourself to be proud, judgmental of others, even fearful of other sinners, people not like you, people more sinful than you, here, you should identify here with the Gentiles. He says, your salvation, everything that has gone into it is not of you. It is of the very plan of God. I mean, Pride by nature is focused on the self, isn't it? We typically think of pride as in boasting in ourselves. That's definitely pride, but pride can also show itself in self-pity, can't it? Boasting says, look at me, I'm so great. Self-pity says, woe is me, because I'll never be great enough. You see then why looking at God's plan to save is a pride killer? Every little detail, friend, Every little detail that God has arranged to bring you to faith in your calling, and even before that, your election, and then your calling, and then your justification, and your sanctification, and even one day, your final glorification, every single little detail to bring you to the throne of God on the very last day is all according to God's plan. It has nothing to do with you. We bring nothing to the table of our salvation, right? So to the proud, Paul basically tells them, look, this ain't about you. God has brought you into his salvation according to his grace. We feel appropriately humbled if we're proud, smacked in the face even, to be brought into something so incredibly grand, something that spans all of history and that even took place in the mind of God before the creation of the world in election. We've been brought here into a mystery of God. And here we should be excited. This is what Paul calls this plan here. God's plan to save there in verse 25. It is a mystery. Now, when you think mystery, don't think, you know, something that's above our comprehension, something that we'll never know. No, the mystery here that Paul writes about and elsewhere in his writings, it refers to aspects about God's salvation in Christ that was previously concealed that has now been revealed. Previously concealed, but that God himself has now revealed. So don't think above our comprehension. Think something that we can, in fact, know. And he actually tells us what it is. Paul tells us plainly, a partial hardening has come upon Israel, ethnic Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles, that is us once again, has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Of course, he's drawing our attention to who is saved, right? But he primarily is talking about the fact that God is saving. He is right now gathering people to himself. And that's what was going on in Paul's day, right? This concerns us all, even though none of us are Jews here. 
This concerns all of us. From last week, we already know that God is at work saving his people from among the Jews, the ethnic Israelites. Now we are reminded that he is at work saving his people among the Gentiles, that is non-Jewish Christians. The big picture plan of salvation here climaxes there in um, 26, 25 and 26, climaxes in 26. This great plan of salvation climaxes in God saving his entire church for his glory. Right, so to the proud, he says, don't look at yourselves. Don't compare yourself to others. Don't judge other people. Trust in Jesus and look at the plan of God as he himself is saving his whole entire church for God's glory. That's what I think it means here when it says there that all Israel will be saved. Okay, so you've probably wondered, like, so where do the Jews fit into God's plan of salvation? What does it mean here when it says all Israel is saved? Now, this passage, especially Verse 26 has brought up tons of discussion in church history. So much so that I think it's important, very important to actually talk about it, at least a little bit, right? So you have issues of what this partial hardening is. You have this issue of the Gentiles are being brought in. Well, what are they being brought into? And then you have, of course, who is the, what's the identity of this all Israel? There are three options here, three major views on the identity of all Israel. There are others, but... Um, I think they can, uh, we don't have to address them here. The three major ones. Number one is uh, all Israel means every single Israelite on earth, let's say at a future time. Every single last Jew on earth at a future point in time, right? Number two, all Israel could mean, people argue, God's elect from among the Jews only, at least right here in this passage. All God's elect among the Jews only. And then number three, all Israel first to God's elect, elect his people in general Jew and Gentile, Jew and Gentile. So let me comment on these three different options, and uh, we'll continue to move on here. So option number one, does all Israel mean every single last Israelite on earth one day in the future? I don't think so. I don't think that actually fits with uh, what Paul has been talking about here. Paul has already said in 9.6, not all Israel is Israel. Well, what does he mean there? He means not all ethnic Israel is God's spiritual people. It means that amongst all of the ethnic Israelites, he has always had a remnant, as he talks about in Romans chapter 11, right? He says there, in every period of time, God has had a remnant and elect among the whole nation of Israel, that is, among the Jews. Not every Jew is saved in the past. Not every Jew will be saved in the future. Okay, so then regarding options two and three, good cases can be made for both of these. You guys remember the options? Uh, option number two is every uh, all of God's elect among the Jews. And then option three is God's elect among Jew and Gentile. Right, this is where Christians, you Christians, need to just study your Bibles, be as diligent as possible, and then draw your own informed conclusions given everything else in the Bible. And uh, it's good to mention that you can, in fact, have different opinions and still have fellowship in the church. There's nothing in our statement of faith that says you must believe that all Israel in Romans chapter 11 verse 26 means this. It is okay to disagree, uh, and that's totally fine. Um, again, we have to be diligent and study our Bibles and come to our own conclusions. I personally think all Israel refers to all of God's elect among the Jews and Gentiles. This was John Calvin's position. If you can think of a modern scholar, if you want to write this down, his name is O. Palmer Robertson that's of interest of you i can point you to other resources as well so we already know going back to why i think this is all israel means god's elect among both jews and gentiles we already know that paul used the term israel in different ways 
So just because it says all Israel doesn't necessarily mean that Israel are physical Jews. Paul already knows. He uses, we already know there that Paul uses Israel in different ways. And we also see this in Galatians chapter 6. In relation to the mystery, here to now move on, you know my position. In relation to the mystery, what's going on here is that Paul pulls back the curtain to show readers what God is doing. And as I move on here, hopefully this is going to back up what I think is, um, why I think all Israel is both Jew and Gentile here. Uh, the mystery has been revealed. God has hardened some Jews presently. And keep in mind, in Paul's time, this was going on, right? A lot of Jews were coming to salvation. We see this in the book of Acts. Thousands of Jews were coming to Christ at that particular time. But then also some were being hardened. So some are being hardened, and then God at the same time is bringing in the full number of Gentiles. And in this way, Romans chapter eleven twenty six says, all Israel, that is, all of God's spiritual people will be saved. Now, for whatever reason, I think of a traffic cop uh, who has, who's at the scene of an accident. Accident has just taken place, and what does the traffic cop need to do? He actually needs to tell some to stop or hold on, right? This, in this case, would be some of the Jews, ethnic Israel. He partially hardens, or he, you know, the traffic cop stops. While he tells the Gentiles to come in, the full number of the Gentiles. This is going on at the same time. That's what was going on in Paul's day, right? Thousands of Jews are coming to Christ. Many are not. Gentiles, thousands are coming in as well. And in this way, at the same time, hardening and welcoming and calling, right? Inclusion among some Jews and inclusion among Gentiles. And in this way, so all Israel will be saved. There you can see the pride of the Gentiles being cut down in God's plan to save. In the partial hardening where some Jews come in and as the full number of Gentiles are called, you look there, it says, in this way, in this manner, by such a process, by this means, in the way described, all Israel will be saved. That is all God's true spiritual people. Anyways, if you want to talk more about that, we can, feel free. Uh, I'd be happy to do that. So whether you take this as referring to the salvation of God's elect among the Jews or God's salvation among both Jew and Gentile, the main point remains basically the same. The main point remains basically the same. It is God who saves just as he said he would. That's the main point here. The proud who are tempted to make their salvation about themselves, they are reminded salvation is all of God. And you look at verse, verses 26 and 27 where he quotes from the Old Testament books of, of Isaiah and then most likely Jeremiah. Go ahead and look there. This is what he says. Just as God had said, this is what God was going to do. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Where does deliverance come from? It is not sinful man, but it is of God. It comes from the deliverer who comes from his throne that is on Zion. Right? This is a prophecy of Jesus Christ. Deliverance has come because Christ went, as the only king of the universe could, to die on the cross for the sins of his people. Thus, who is it that banishes ungodliness? That's what it says there. It is God. Who is it that takes away the sins of the world? It is Christ. It isn't us as if we're saved by our own deeds. We are saved by God's covenant promises that's what we see there it is my covenant with them when i take away their sins as isaiah and jeremiah says 
Now, if you are visiting with us, you're exploring Christianity, you know yourself not to be a Christian, I hope you, you learn here what Christianity is not about in the way in which Paul rebukes Christians. I hope you're learning what Christianity is really about as Paul rebukes Christians. These Christians here were tempted to make Christianity, right, the thrust of Christianity, all about themselves and not God and His glory. That's pride for you. Take something that is primarily about God's gracious provision to us and make it all about yourself. But according to the Bible, Christianity is all about Christ and His glory. I mean, just look where Paul is going in 33 to 36, as we read earlier. Oh, the depth and riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God, His ways, and His judgments are inscrutable. And you look there at 36, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things to Him be the glory forever. So from this, we see what faith in Jesus Christ is about. It's about God and His plan. It's about God and His glory in Jesus Christ. But you know, people get into Christianity for all sorts of different reasons. So if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, or if you are a Christian and you even know from your own experience why you got into Christianity, maybe this reminds you of yourself, right? I've known people to get into Christianity to find a girlfriend or a boyfriend. I've known people to get into Christianity because they want to try him out and maybe God is going to reward the person attending church, trying him out with like a new job or a new car or more money or maybe even closer to the gospel, but definitely not the gospel. People attend church because they want to feel better about themselves. They feel so junky because they just committed some sort of sin and their conscience nags them. And so they just turn up to church to feel better about themselves as if they can just tick a box, salvation by church attendance, right? That's why some people go to church. Or maybe people attend church because that's just what our family has always done. Now, if you're here for any of those reasons, we welcome you. I am glad you're here, and I definitely want to talk to you about the gospel. Please know that it's on the Christian church to tell visitors about what the true thrust of Christianity is all about. It is what God has done for sinners in Jesus Christ, and thus Christ gets all the glory. It's not about what Christ will do for our own selfish wills or my desires. It's not about us, which is the nature of pride. I mean, think about it. Think about it. Is it appropriate to give the one who creates you and sustains you even right now, is it appropriate to give him a try? Because that's God, right? He creates and sustains the world. I mean, we don't even treat our parents that way. Why would we treat Jesus, the Lord, that way? I mean, what do we right here, right now, think of a child who is dependent upon her parent, his parent, who turns up to his or her parents and says, you know what, mom and dad, I've decided to give you a try. And you know what? Who knows? Maybe you're going to reward my effort at giving you a try with a car, with an allowance, maybe a boyfriend and shelter, right? That is totally inappropriate. You don't give your parents a try. So why in the world would we give, give Jesus the Lord a try? Giving Jesus Christ a try is like thinking him, thinking of him like he's the latest credit card available for you to try out. See if, you're, if the benefits are appropriate to our lifestyle and maybe not, we just call up and just cancel it. Well, it's using Jesus the Lord, your creator and sustainer, as your own personal means to your end. 
But friends, Jesus is a person. He's a person. He is the eternal Son of God. I mean, through Him, the Word says, all things were made. For Him, all things were made. And God has made us to be in a relationship of love with Him. But all people have not just chosen a different path, like they choose a different credit card. No, we have actually sinned against Him. We have rebelled against the only one King by seeking to be our own kings. We are selfish. We are proud by nature. We have discarded all genuine appreciation, all respect, all thanks and love to him. And friends, God will hold us accountable as rebellion against him is worthy of judgment. Friends, I hope you see the Bible's perspective here. I hope you see the Bible's perspective in turning up to the only king who is the creator and sustainer and saying, yeah, sure, I'll give you a try. It's not only a mistake, but friends, it puts your very lives at danger. But in the gospel, we see the great lengths to which God goes to love his people. Even though all have sinned against him by living as if we were the only king, even though we have earned God's wrath and judgment. Friends, you see God's love. God steps down from his throne. The deliverer comes from Zion He steps down from his throne to save. God sent Christ in love for sinners. As Jesus Christ goes on and he takes on flesh. And he he arrives wanting to stop sinners in their tracks. And he says, look at me. Turn back to God, your creator. Not only is God's love seen in Jesus calling sinners back, but also in dying on the cross for them. For his people deserved God's judgment and wrath. God provided a substitute sacrifice. A substitute sacrifice in Jesus Christ. The Bible says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Three days later, he gets up from the grave, showing all that payment has now been made for everyone who repents of their sins and believes on him. And so all the blessings of salvation in Jesus Christ come through our Lord and Savior. That is, forgiveness of sin, restored relationship to our one maker, adopted into the family of God, access to his throne of grace. Now, those are genuine blessings. I mean, God... Jesus Christ does, in fact, serve us, but not in a selfish way, but in a way where we bow our knees to our Savior. We learn to live according to his law, under relationship with him, all by his grace, and God gets the glory. So here, pride is to be killed here by turning to the fact that God has a plan, and it is not about us, ultimately, though we do receive blessings. It is ultimately about God and his glory. So, friend, if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, let me encourage you that these blessings can be yours. You can be restored to your maker if you repent of your sins and believe on him, and you will be forgiven, loved by God, and know the very peace of God. Christians are to live for God's glory. He has had a plan to save sinners in Jesus Christ. And we've seen in point number two that God's plans always stand. Point number two, God's plans always stand. If verses 25 to 27 highlight the plan of God to save sinners. Verses 28 to 32 show us very plainly, in a way that cultivates humility and kills pride, God's plans always stand. His plans with his people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But of course, he's focusing on Jew and Gentile. I'll go ahead and read that. Let's go ahead and read uh, 28 to 32. As regards the gospel, they, that is... Ethnic Israel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. 
For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that they might be shown mercy. Well, let me repeat that, verse 31. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Put yourself in the proud Gentile Christian's perspective here. This, I imagine, would be hard to hear. Their hearts are filled with pride and bitterness. Maybe they have been um, judged in the past, and so they want to judge back. I mean, if I am a young Christian struggling with pride and bitterness towards a certain people, to then hear that God has a plan for those very people, that's going to be hard to hear. God has a special plan for them, even though they are my enemies in regards to the gospel. That's what it says there in verse 28. I mean, in my sin, I might not want God's plan to be fulfilled in them. I might want to talk about how they are enemies. I might want to talk about how God how they deserve to be judged in God's wrath. But you notice there, as he says that they are enemies in regards to the gospel, in the very same breath, he says that they are, look there, as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. He says at present they are, in fact, they are en- your enemies, but to God, they, the remnant of the Jews, they are still beloved. Beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Isn't that interesting? You just pause r- one moment here, right? I have definitely known racism uh, committed against me and have, and have pushed back and given back racism as well. You think about the people that we might be racist towards. You know that God has an elect among all of them, no matter who they are. You see how our pride should be cut down here in this moment to know that they are beloved. They might not be beloved in the same types of ways that the, Jew, the elect Jews were. They were beloved for the, on the, for the sake of their forefathers. I mean, we could argue that, that all God's elect among all people are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. We share in their same promises. We do genuinely have them as our forefathers. But here our pride is supposed to be cut down. Those people that we discriminate against, those people that we have hostile feelings towards, God loves them. He has an elect among them. Now here, when it says that they are elect because of their forefathers, it does not mean that they are uh, beloved because of the merit of their forefathers. That's not what it means. He means that God's elect Jews are beloved on account of the same reasons why he loved the forefathers. Abraham in Genesis, Isaac, Abraham's son, Jacob, Isaac's son, or at least one of them. Uh, What are these reasons as we push into this passage here? What are the reasons why they are beloved? It is not because Abraham chose God first. It's not because Isaac chose God first. It's not because Jacob chose God first. Why then are are God's elect Jews that come from their forefathers beloved like their forefathers? That's verse 29. Look there. Because it is God's will. It's because they are God's people. They are of God's elect. They are beloved. Verse 29 says, for, that is the reason why the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. That's why they're loved. You want to take up issue with them and discriminate against them and commit racist, racist acts against them. You're taking up God's cause. You're setting your face against God himself. The gifts, uh, that is the promises of God, are of God. The calling, that is the calling by which God himself draws his people into salvation. At the time that he determines all these things, they are irrevocable. They are irreversible. They are unchangeable. They are beloved of God because God chooses to love them. 
and God's sovereignty will undoubtedly back up his promises. Thus, God's plans always stand. What a rebuke to the proud and bitter little brother who might have been a little bit glad that the Jews were not coming in in greater number. The bitter, right, we all know what this is like. The bitter might be tempted to consign all believing Jews, sorry, unbelieving Jews to this lostness, but not God. Ezekiel chapter 33 says there, God says, I do not delight in the death of the wicked. Elsewhere in the New Testament, he says that he wants everybody to come to a saving knowledge of God, to repentance and faith. If there is any pride or bitterness or territorialism, all that is to be banished. In the face of the plan of God, the proud and the bitter can be moved and are moved by the Spirit to becoming welcoming and even eagerly anticipating their greatest enemies come to faith in Jesus Christ. But of course, it's not only knowing God's saving plan to others that is to cultivate gratitude and appreciation and love. Here, what is also to generate appreciation and a love for others and a submission to God and a desire to see others come into stream into Zion to worship Jesus Christ. It's knowing that just as God has plans to shower his grace and mercy on them, so he has had that same grace and mercy to you. Same grace, the same mercy. Knowing that it is, the, it is only by the sovereign grace of God that you are saved breaks down all pride in ourselves or pride towards other people, right? Instead of being standoffish towards others, Christians here are moved, right? They're moved to humility before God, to praising God, and then also to loving all because everybody is in need of that same saving grace that you yourself have received. This is Paul's point there in 31, 30 and 31. God saves everyone in the exact same way, so don't be proud, right? We all need God's saving mercy. We all were disobedient, but yet God in his kindness broke the power of sin, the tyranny of sin. He gave us the spirit. He's opened our eyes to behold Jesus Christ who died on the cross. And so we cling to him by faith, just as he did this with the Gentiles. So he's going to do this with the Jews. Just as he has done this with us. So he is going to do this among the peoples that we might not naturally get along with or might sinfully despise. Verse 32 gives a summary for God has consigned all that has imprisoned all. He has trapped up all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. This imprisoning, we can think back to earlier in Romans where we are imprisoned in sin because of Adam's sin and also because we commit sin. But friends, there is light. You see darkness, God consigns, he imprisons. But you see light. Just as God enclosed all to sin, so he will have mercy on all to those who call upon him. There is no favoritism with God, as, as verses 31, 30, 30 and 31 say. Just as the Gentiles were judged in sin, so the Jews were too. Just as there is no favoritism with God there in terms of who he judges, so there is no favoritism in those he saves. He saves all by his mercy, not by any work of ours. Now here when it says that he will have mercy on all, doesn't mean that all people will be saved. He's not talking about all without exception. You know that term? All without exception. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying that he's going to have mercy on all without distinction. Exception means, he says, everybody in the whole entire world. Distinction means 
that those who are Jew or Gentile, Asian, Hispanic, etc., 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 all without distinction come, come to Jesus Christ and call upon him. And when they call upon the name of the Lord, they, in fact, will be saved. Friends, as we looked at last week and as we continue to look at today, if you're next to the cross, if you're under the saving grace of God in the cross of Jesus Christ, we know that there is no room for pride. In fact, seeing God's great plan of salvation to Jew and Gentile and seeing God's saving mercy to sinners who repent of their sins and believe, all of these things break down pride. The thrust of this sermon and last week's is there is not pride but profound humility in the cross of Christ. Let me just add a few more here. Let me just add a few more practical things, right? Standing under the mercy and grace of God, as God is the deliverer who saves us, He's the one who banishes ungodliness from our own hearts. He is the one uh, who keeps His own covenant and makes a covenant with us, and He is the one who takes away our sins, right? Standing underneath that glorious grace should move us not to pull away from others, but to make a stronger push towards them. That's first. This conclusion, conclusion kind of uh, application here. It should lead us to not pull away from others, but to make a stronger push towards them. Right? Second Corinthians chapter 5, Paul there, he says that, look, this is the reason why Christians go about their ministry. It's because we are compelled by the grace of God, compelled by the love of God. We, therefore, seek to minister to other people because they need the same type of mercy that we ourselves have. Everything is all of grace. If we judge other sinners who we think are not as moral as us or their sins are more disgusting as ours, just think of like the sliding scale of public morality. You think of like the worst types of sinners that even Christians might be tempted towards judging them. They're the same as us. They're in need of God's grace. It's only by God's grace that we are kept back from being that ungodly. But we say that not in a way that we judge them. We say, wow, thank God for your grace. I am just like them. The same stuff as them is in me, even though it might not come out in the same exact ways. Apart from Jesus Christ, we are all to be judged and experience the wrath of God, whether one is on this bad side of morality or keeps all of the laws, however one defines the laws. So we want to make a stronger push towards them, knowing that they need the same types of grace that we ourselves need. The second thing. We are to, are to be moved in our hearts, not to cruelty, but compassion. Of course, that just is kind of like double-clicking on what I just said. How are we to make a stronger push towards them? It's not in cruelty, but it's in compassion. Cruelty judges. Cruelty stands over others and just dismisses them for all the things that they do. But we as Christians, how, do we, how can we do that? Because we know that salvation is not of our works, but it's of, of God's grace. And so we are just like Jesus, Lord willing. Christ doesn't stand on his throne so far apart from us. No, he steps down from his throne. He takes on flesh and dies for sinners. He stands over Israel, those who are going to kill him, and he weeps over them. On the cross, he prays that God would forgive them because they know not what they do. Friends, can you do that? Jesus experienced such great hostility from others, but yet in the moment, He doesn't write them off, but he actually reaches out to them in his very shed blood, in compassion, recognizing that it is all all of his grace that saves. The next one, number three, we're just kind of going deeper here. We are to use words, we are to speak words that don't blast others, 
as in judgment. That's what the Jews seem to be doing. That's what the Gentiles seem to be doing. But we speak words seeking to bless others, not blast, but bless in the gospel. Not blast, but blessed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's that thing that we want people to see so clearly that is the power to save. It isn't a human work. It's not anything that we do. It's not inherent to who we are. But it's in the very power of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. The grace and the mercy that comes from God. Why would we ever seek to judge as if we are more righteous than other people? We seek to give words of grace even if it means that we are persecuted till the, till the point of death, just like Jesus. So to wrap up here, the overarching thrust of Romans chapter 11, at least practically speaking, we, we're not to cultivate pride, but we're supposed to be moved to profound humility. What does this mean? That This doesn't mean pulling away from others in racism or judgmentalism, but making a stronger push towards them. And of course, as we push, make a stronger push towards them, we're not to be cruel to others, but we're supposed to be moved to compassion. Knowing that if it were not for the saving grace of God, we too would be judged in hell. And of course, as we are moved to compassion, we're not to speak words that blast in judging them, but we are supposed to speak words that bless, words that are in, or words of the gospel there. So we are saved by the mercy of God alone. When we realize what God has done for us in sending His Son to die on the cross for our sin and in so doing pardoning the sin of everyone who repents of their sins and believe, the Christian can never be proud. We have been brought to the table of God's salvation only by His sovereign grace and mercy. Thus we say with the hymn writer Isaac Watts in the hymn, How sweet and awful is the place, awful not as in bad, but awful as in full of awe. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? You see that humility, you hear that humility in our fellow brother Isaac Watts' hymn there? in the sentiment there behind those words in his own heart, and that is to be ours as well. It's a heart that's marked by humility, knowing that God has worked on us. His grace has found us and saved us. So with humility and thankfulness and awe, we stand before Jesus Christ and His throne of grace. Though we were depraved at one time, imprisoned to disobedience, in the arrival of Jesus Christ and on our believing on Him for salvation, we have now received mercy we see that repeated in 30 and 31 now is repeated three times now in the arrival of jesus christ there is mercy for every sinner who calls upon the name of the lord in light of god's sovereign grace and mercy in jesus christ look where paul lands there on 33 and 36 look where he lands there it isn't on the intricacies of election that we will never know Look where he lands there. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And so we see at the end of this chapter. 
Salvation is all of God's grace, and it is for His glory. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, considering your great plan to save, your great plan to save in Jesus, your great plan to save in Jesus according to your love and mercy and grace, all according to your own promises, even though while we were yet sinners, Lord, as we consider the cross of Jesus Christ and all that you, Lord Jesus, have done for us as sinners, Lord, we are humbled. And the words of Paul here, these words of awe, of humility, of praise, and wonder, Lord, they are ours. Lord, where we might be tempted to boast in our own selves or take pride in who we might be or maybe even what you have done for us as if we ourselves are that glorious, Lord, we ask that you would, in fact, rebuke us. Father, we pray that you would help us see your depth of riches. The inexhaustible wisdom and knowledge of yours. And how backing up that wisdom and knowledge is nothing but your sovereign grace. Father, we know, as your word says, that we deserve to be judged. But you, in your kindness, in your inscrutable ways, have chosen to save some according to your love. So, Lord, we ask that, indeed, all of our lives, for us Christians at First Baptist Church, Lord, we pray that all of us would live to the praise of your glorious grace, as it says here in your word, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Lord, we pray that as we prepare to go out of this place, that you would help us by your spirit, uh, that you would conform us more to the image of Christ, who was humble, who left his throne of glory because he didn't see Glory to be grasped after. Instead, he just freely let it down in order to take on flesh and suffer at the hands of sinners so that sinners would be saved. Lord, we pray that you would give us that same spirit of Jesus Christ or you would fill us with the same spirit of Jesus Christ that we might walk in his same footsteps and be humble. Lord, as we share the gospel with others, Lord, we pray that as we share it, we would share it identifying with all sorts of people. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a humility to know how to talk to others about sin. We pray, Lord, that this would evidence itself in the ways in which we talk about our own sin and the very things that you, according to your grace in Christ, have saved us from. Open our mouths that we might be humble, that we might confess our sins freely to others, that we might pray for the grace of God, and that we might cling to it all the way until the day that you glorify us in your Son. In your name we pray. Amen.